Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast. Today, I'm joined by Allison Gannett, who has just an incredible story of being a world champion extreme athlete, then diagnosed with brain cancer and given a terminal diagnosis. Oh, and oh, by the way, this was over six years ago. And now she's alive and thriving and helping give back by being a cancer nutrition coach and helping people who have been diagnosed with cancer get through it both emotionally and physically and using nutrition and lifestyle as a guide. Uh, she works very closely with Dr. Nasha Winners, and a big part of their message is that it's it's really about changing your entire lifestyle to lower your risk of cancer progression. And it's a, such an interesting topic. And we also talk a little bit about um, evidence because when you're talking about something like this, you're clearly outside of conventional evidence. And And what does that mean? Well, what does that mean for somebody with no diagnosed disease but just wants to be healthy and prevent cancer versus someone who's been given this this life-threatening stage four cancer diagnosis. It means two completely different things. So we, we talk about that a little bit, and hopefully you'll you'll see that there's a definite difference. So when somebody's listening to this saying, well, that, how does this apply to me? Well, we all are going to have a friend or family member or loved one diagnosed with cancer, and a large percentage of us individually will be diagnosed with cancer. So whether we're talking about prevention or whether we're talking about treatment, this is going to hit many of us. Uh, so hopefully you'll appreciate the message and, and understand the, the nuances depending on who you are and who the, how this applies to you. So I hope you enjoy this interview and understand that this is a remarkable story and enjoy the story of Allison Gannett. Allison Gannett, thanks so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. I'm so glad to be here. You have an absolutely fascinating story, and I need to start with the extreme skiing part because I love to ski, but there's always that fear factor in the back of my brain, especially as I've gotten a little older, that restrains me from doing too much. But as a champion extreme skier, I got to imagine you just didn't have that fear factor, did you? Oh, it's so not true. No? No. I mean... You know, I have a big fear of like doing my taxes, you know, and it's just, you know, it takes practice, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm sure I would have a great fear of doing like cardiac surgery um, and that takes practice. And it's the same with skiing, you know, it's it's baby steps, you know, first I learned to jump like one foot, then two feet, then three feet, then 50 feet, you know, yeah. and you just get there. And, you know, the other thing is, is I was a real dorky kind of overweight math geek as a kid. And I think it was just an overcompensation to like go in the whole other direction. And so now I'm kind of like more in the middle and I'm probably a better place, a little less extreme. Were you a little bit of an adrenaline junkie when you started into the extreme skiing that you got the, the rush from it and wanted more? I think I became addicted to exercise. Mm. And I think I was kind of I've always been like kind of a type A stressaholic and that's a lot in my genetics yeah, for sure. But then I think also that, you know, compensation mechanism of proving to everybody that I wasn't a dork uh, happened along with that. And, and along that, I became a bit addicted to exercise as right. an escape. Right. Nerdy math geeks don't jump off cliffs this high. No, <laughs> no. unsure where they're going to land. But it was a really, you know, uh, it might have damaged my health quite a bit, but I think, you know, it was a great way to see the world. And yeah. um, 
get paid for it. Right, right. And, yeah. and that's what's so interesting, whether it's that or whether it's, you know, ultra endurance marathons or triathlons, there are things we do for the rush, for the enjoyment, for the psychological component, for the lifestyle, but have nothing to do with our health. And we need to understand that difference. Yeah. And I think what, you know, our modern day society is that we are just so bombarded with stress, with work and family and then we add stress from exercise on top of it and then we have the mental emotional stress on top of that and we were you know bred to run from the tiger run from danger Um, but I think unfortunately in my case I just that became my whole life Mm. and you know it takes a toll on your health yeah and then your life of course did a very sharp 180 degree turn diagnosed with a grapefruit-sized brain tumor. I think it was an orange. An orange, okay. Yeah, terminal malignant cancer in 2013. I, you know, really, I was acting a little bit oddly, uh, because, but we lived at a farm in the middle of nowhere um, with my husband. So he was like, well, you know, (laughs) the funny story is, is he thought I was trying to, like, get rid of him. And really, I don't remember any of this. Like my brain tumor was like taking over my brain. And so I was um, losing like depth perception. If I went to jump off a cliff skiing, I couldn't tell if it was one foot or like 20. That's a big detriment. And were you crashing more and having more injuries? You know, I'd end up like... Um, when you have no depth perception, I'd actually not go because I couldn't tell, Uh, like I'd walk around and then I'd be like, Oh, it was only a foot. Right. Like, but I was so affected by the tumor and I didn't know it every, to me, I was walking and talking to everybody else. I was walking and talking and I was having some odd behaviors. Um, but it wasn't enough at first to be like, Oh, something's really wrong. There was one day that I was cooking bacon and I was watching the flames like go up the wall and my husband walked in and was like, what are you doing? You're just standing there watching the flames. Yeah. I thought it was cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it really had, it it affected your ability to comprehend what was going on around you. And and, uh, I guess there's a term for it. It's like ahendonia or something. Mm -hmm. Um, lack of caring about things is anhedonia anhedonia thank you i've never spelled i've never known how to pronounce that right right and so then you end up with the diagnosis of brain cancer and i saw saw the pictures of the surgery with the big swollen eye and you look like you've been worse than any fall you've probably ever had (laughs) after that surgery and you're given the diagnosis like you said of terminal brain cancer and yet here you were an athlete in great shape living on a farm, eating organic foods, doing healthy things. I mean, it comes as a shock to anybody, but this must have been a tremendous, even bigger shock for you. It was. I really thought I was a healthy person. Yeah. And I think, you know, I hear this all the time now being an oncology diet coach, people always say, well, you know, I'm the healthiest person or my mother's the healthiest person or my father's the healthiest person. And I'm like, well you know, healthy people don't get cancer. So what I thought was healthy, uh, I clearly was not healthy. And, you know, starting with blood sugar imbalance, that was, 
you know, a big whammy. You know, I had some bad genetics in there. I had leaky gut. I had immune system disruption. I had a lot of inflammation. I had thyroid problems. I was an over-exerciser. I was an over-stressor. You know, the list goes on and on. So basically everything I studied in college for nutrition turned out to be wrong. Yeah. That's the long and the short of right. it. That's why we're here talking. Right. And we'll talk more about that. But it, so on the surface, someone can look perfectly healthy and seem like they're doing things right. But underneath, there can be a lot of processes that have gone awry. Once you had this diagnosis and you were basically given a terminal sentence, what was the path you took to sort of take ownership and get to the point that you are now? Well, you know, the first part was interesting because they didn't actually tell me it was a terminal diagnosis. They were like, oh, you're young, you're healthy, like the surgery went pretty well, we got most of the tumor. And I was thinking, oh, well, you know, that means I'm going to be fine. And then, you know, I started Googling around and then I'm like, this is terminal. And then I found out that people who did chemo, radiation and surgery lived less than 6.8 months. Hmm. And was no it a glioblastoma? Sorry no, it was a hemangiopericytoma. Okay. And so it's kind of like a glioblastoma, but it metastasizes down the spine and loves to travel. Hmm. So it's, you know, it's an ugly kind of tumor. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it always regrows in the brain pretty much kills everybody or it gr- grows through the body. And then metastasized to liver and the so you spinal had surgery, column. but no radiation, no chemo, and here it is six years later. Well, I luckily found Dr. Nisha Winters, and she said, "Well, you know what we're going to do is we're going to run some labs, and we're going to run some DNA testing, and we're going to, you know, put the puzzle together. We're going to figure out what caused you to get cancer, what underlying imbalances that you didn't know you had." And then we're going to reverse those one by one. And when we ran the genetic test, uh, I basically don't process drugs like chemo drugs very well, and nor would I be a very good candidate for radiation due to steroids raising blood sugar and me having a blood sugar problem. Mm. So since the outcomes were not good for standard of care for me and my DNA was not pushing me in that direction, I chose to not do that and just look at the underlying causes instead. And Mm. I, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, that's easy, but underlying causes are hard, you know, changing behavior is hard. hard. And I had to change my whole life and, you know, diet was just the start. Yeah. So I want to emphasize though that was an incredibly personal choice. Exactly. And not necessarily that is recommended for everybody. And and I've had interviews with uh, Dr. Nisha Winters and she's wonderful. And one of the messages I really like is to use lifestyle as an adjuvant to traditional therapies and that there is a role for those. And it's not, you know, things get polarized so easily, especially on social media that all chemotherapy is terrible, all radiation is terrible, and it's not so black and white. It's not. Um, yeah. Every single person's different. Every single cancer is different. Yeah. You know, you could, you know, for one person, chemo and radiation is going to be absolutely amazing. For one person, surgery is going to be great. For another person, surgery is going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also clinics in Germany and Turkey and Mexico that are using 
things like hyperthermia, hyperbaric oxygen, um, in addition to low dose chemo. And, you know, I could list on and on and on and on how many millions of treatments there are out there. And keto is just one of those things. Right. Yeah. And it, it's so interesting that we talk about cancer as if it's one thing. Exactly. But brain cancer is so different from renal cell carcinoma, so different from leukemia and lymphoma, and they all react differently to different types of treatment. So it, I think that's another important, and stage one versus stage four, completely yes. different. And that's why it's so important to work with somebody who understands lifestyle and understands cancer, whether it's Dr. Nasha or yourself. And, and so you are now a, a, a cancer nutritional coach. Right. Right. And, but as we were talking, you say all of your clients need to first work with somebody like Dr. Nisha or some, some exactly. other You know, there's no amount of diet and lifestyle change that is going to help if the ter- tumor burden's too high. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really important that you're working with a doctor that understands how to reduce the tumor, tumor burden and to look at the other root causes. Yeah. Like as an oncology diet coach, I am limited with my insurance and regulations and such to just talk about diet, um, maybe meditation or exercise, things mm-hmm. like that. But, uh, you know, Dr. Nisha is going to look at, like, do you have a thyroid problem? Um, are you potentially have some virus or right. do you have uh, an immune system problem or a leaky gut or, you know, she's going to go through all of those things. So let's talk about the science a little bit. I mean, traditionally in medicine, we're taught sort of the two-hit theory or the that you have a, a genetic defect or a, a genetic snip or some sort of genetic change that then encounters an environmental exposure, and that's what triggers cancer. And a lot of the um, focus has been on genetics for cancer mm-hmm. versus the metabolic side of things, the so-called called Warburg effect, that the cancer cells they have a completely different metabolism. They do this anaerobic glycolytic process even in the presence of oxygen. So they right. they create energy um, as if there's no oxygen available even when there's tons of oxygen. And it, so it's a disordered metabolism of the mitochondria and the way the cell functions. Um, and it primarily u- utilizes glucose and can't use other forms of energy really besides glucose. So the simplistic model is ketogenic diet. You lower glucose, you use ketones for fuel, and you starve the cancer. And while based in truth, it's not quite so black and white, is it? Exactly. I mean, the whole goal is to weaken the cancer cells for sure so that other treatments can like dive in there and, you know, healthy cells become healthier on the ketogenic diet and cancer cells do become weaker. Um, You know, they're not outrightly killed per se, but you know, Dr. Nisha always says, you know, what we don't care if you have a tumor or you don't have a tumor. It's it's whether that tumor is cancering. Mm-hmm. You know, is it actually being active? And so, a lot of times we see when we put people on the ketogenic diet, and if, and we can talk about this too. Uh, there's no one ketogenic diet. There's no one cancer diet. Every single person should be on a specific diet for their DNA and for their labs and for their history. And there's a lot of misinformation out there between also what I call internet keto and therapeutic keto. They're very, very different things. Yeah. So tell me some of the specifics about that. 
Well, the first thing I do, you know, I look at a client's history, you know, did they live in Love Canal or were they a firefighter or worked in the military? You know, that can cause like toxin exposure. So uh, you want to avoid toxins in, in the beginning for, or well, forever really. Uh, but then looking at labs, um, is there a lot of inflammation present? Um, are the liver en enzymes high? That could indicate that there's some kind of toxin exposure going on. Uh, want to look at blood sugars, you know, is insulin a problem? Is hemoglobin A1C a problem? Um, How do you define hemoglobin A1C as a problem? Because, you know, the definition of what diabetes is, is I'm guessing not the definition you're using as a problem. Well, for sure. Um, you know, I was um, pre-diabetic when I got diagnosed in a, you know, here I am this incredible athlete, but, you know, I'm going out there and doing long bike races and skis and, you know, having gels and, you know, energy bars that are right. all just like mainlining carbohydrates with my lifestyle. Uh, and so hemoglobin A1C, you know, mine is now 4.6. And, you know, when I started, it was 5.6, 5.7. Yeah. Um, and then even bigger problem is how is insulin, fasting insulin, because really the bigger issue is insulin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we also look at, you know, fasting glucose, uh, IGF-1, all these different blood sugar markers. You can't just like pick one. Right. It, it, what you're, what Dr. Nesha has taught me is to look for patterns. Um, you know, a, a certain pattern of glucose and hormones might indicate like polycystic ovarian disease um, or a certain pattern, with, you know, like if we see high thyroid antibodies, it often can mean that you're massively allergic to grains. Hmm. So there's all these like little snippets. And I feel like Sherlock Holmes when I look at labs and when I look at DNA, because yeah. it's just like, it's just a super fun puzzle to put <laughs> together. And I love that about my life. You know, I am learning more about my body every day. And it's been this continual discovery. But it really gives you power because what you feel when you're diagnosed is just complete disempowerment. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So you see people in a very desperate moment where they think they've yeah. lost control of their well, lives. Well, myself too. Right. You know, I was there when I just felt like, uh, you know, that I was blowing in the wind waiting to find out when I was going to die. Yeah. And so having something to really focus on, like your labs, and I track my labs every month. And I don't miss a month because I don't want to miss some kind of disruption. Like, for example, I can tell when I'm working too much mm -hmm. or because my cortisol will go up and my insulin will go up. Or I can tell where I've exercised too much. I did a ski trip last February and, you know, went and had a ball. And everybody said, well, if you're doing what you love, then it doesn't matter. Well, it did matter. Yeah. My labs took a huge hit in inflammation after that ski trip. Mm. And so, you know, you learn what your body can tolerate and what it can't. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, following labs can certainly be helpful in so many different ways to learn changes. But is there a risk of focusing too much on one lab change? I mean, like a, a CRP that goes from 0.5 to 1.2 doesn't give you cancer. Exactly. It, but it can be part of an overall picture that if it's moving a certain direction. Exactly. Yeah. And you, it, it is in the beginning, 
I and my clients, we're always like we see something go up like CRP and then we're panicking, right? Oh my gosh, I had cancer, you know? Well, it turns out I had a sore throat, right? Right. You know, so it's not that one lab is going to give you cancer. It's the whole everything, right? You know, you've got, you've got to have all these factors, you know, Dr. Nasha calls them or 10 different things, the 10 different root causes of cancer. You know, if my thyroid goes off, that's not going to give me cancer, but that combined with over-exercise and inflammation and high blood sugar and a virus, all those things together are going to cause the perfect storm. Mm, Right. And the, the treatment of cancer it takes a very different form than the prevention of cancer. Right. And I think that's important to differentiate. So the people that you work with are mostly the ones with cancer who are coming to you with a diagnosis and wanting to incorporate lifestyle as part of their their treatment regimen. Is that correct? I do both, actually. You do both. Okay. Yeah. Because when you talk about a therapeutic ketogenic diet, you sort of touched on that versus the internet diet. Right. I want to hear some specifics about the diet, how your therapeutic keto diet is very different from the what you call the internet keto diet. Well, the therapeutic keto di- ketogenic diet uh, is when ketones are generally between three and seven. So higher level of ketones. And then I also focus on the quality of the foods mm-hmm. because- you know, if you go on internet keto, what I call it, it's all about like, oh, let's get some sausage from Costco and big bag of grated cheese and we're going to make like this casserole. Well, my whole goal with therapeutic keto is to get, how do I get five to nine cups of vegetables into 20 grams of carbs, total Mm -hmm. carbs a day. And that's a real challenge to do that. And then I use chronometer uh, to track my foods and my clients' foods, um, because it's about getting the right quality of the foods, but also the quantity of the macros. Mm-hmm. Uh, for therapeutic keto, we're aiming for 85% fat, okay, 5% carb, 10% protein. So it's very low protein, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. A lot of people overeat protein, overeat carbs, and undereat fat. So I find a lot of people trying to do therapeutic keto have kind of their bodies burning glucose one moment and then it's burning fat and then it's burning glucose. It it does, it's not quite sure where to be. It's kind of doing both. Right. And for therapeutic keto to manage disease um, or insulin resistance, um, your body needs to be continually in that fat burning mode. You can't be yo-yoing back and forth. So uh, a beta hydroxybutyrate level between three and seven. I mean yep. that is significantly high, and a lot of people struggle to get there. Yes. Um, so it, it's going to take a lot of effort. Now, again, if you have stage four cancer, you're going to do whatever you need to do. Exactly. I mean, people are a, like, "Isn't it hard?" And I'm like, "It's hard to die." Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's so what, pretty motivated. With those macros, do you find that's all you need to get people into that range or do you need to incorporate intermittent fasting or exogenous ketones or what sort of tricks can you help people with to get their levels that high to get into your therapeutic ketogenic range? Everybody's different, of course. Um, But the first place I start is with chronometer because a lot of people think they're eating low carb and they're not. And a lot of people think they're eating high fat and they're not. The amount of fat needed uh, for therapeutic ketogenic diet, if you're trying to gain weight, you're going to be eating like 
somewhere between 200 and 400 grams of carb uh, fat a day, which is a lot. 400 of grams fat. of fat. I would say I average about 300 wow. grams of fat a day. Yeah. Um, and then we need to look at genetics about what kinds of fats yeah, you should be eating. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the next thing is is stress. Are people exercising too much or are they overworking? Because that can throw them out of ketosis um, yeah. really easily. So people can be eating perfectly if they're tracking on chronometer and everything's right. I'm immediately diving into exercise and stress as being problems. And right. then hormones. Mm-hmm. Hormones can be a huge problem uh, throwing people out of ketosis. So I want, I want to get into all that, but to focus a little bit more on the food, to get yeah. to get that much fat with that little protein, you sort of have to get sort of creative about your sources of fat because it's not coming from steak and from eggs and cheese because that's... No, it's coming from actual fat itself. Like yeah. I think of avocado as a carb, <laughs> you know, I think of egg as a protein yeah. and I think of nuts as a carb. So is it a ton of olive oil and coconut oil? And... Depends on the genetics yeah. for the fats, but like my typical day, I'll fast in the morning and then at lunch, I'll generally have like a huge salad, like four or five cups of greens, all mixed and seasonal. And then I will fry some type of vegetable in another fat and put it on top of my salad that's topped with an olive oil salad dressing. So there's two fats. Then I'm going to cook my protein in a different keto fat and then put that on top. And then maybe I'd put some organic pork rinds on top of that. So that's four different fats. And then for dessert, I'd probably have like one of my homemade uh, Life by Chocolate brownies. Um, So that's... So that's six fats are we at? I don't know. So it's like layer upon layer of fat and really trying to mix up the vegetables. A lot of people eat the same thing every day. And I think of food as medicine. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if I can get 20 different kinds of salad greens in that salad, then I'm getting, you know, 50 plus antioxidants and polyphenols, if not more. Right. And so really trying to have a lot of different types of vegetables, a lot of different types of fats. And uh, a lot of different types of proteins that are really, really high quality, grass-fed, grass-finished, using ewg.org to find uh, fish that's safe to eat, um, making sure my eggs are pastured. Yeah, so that, you know, just hearing that you say that, it it makes a lot of sense. And if you can afford to do that, it's clearly the right way to go. But those foods are much more expensive. So how do you help your clients sort of draw the line of – how important it is to get the grass-fed beef, to get the pastured eggs at, you know, $8 a dozen versus $2.50 a dozen for the regular eggs. You know, how do you help them draw the line of the importance of that? Well, when you're dealing with disease management, you have to go there. Yeah. You know, if you've got an egg that's been eating uh, GMO corn, you know, sprayed with glyphosate, Um, And then it's also then soy, which is an estrogen mimicker, and that chicken ate that ingredient, and then you're eating that egg. You're getting those cancer drivers, those growth factors for cancer in that egg. And so it's really important what your food eats. And as a farmer, you know, I raise animals. And so I know, you know, from an ethical standpoint, I think it's really important to do those things um, for the animal and for myself. And, you know, the animal deserves the best. It's, 
what I think someone did a study, and I can't remember who calculated it, but because the amounts of proteins are fairly low, and the overall your overall food intake actually goes down, even though your amount of calories might even go up, they actually say that you save money on the ketogenic diet, even buying the best of the best because of that issue. Especially if you can go to two meals a day instead of three and you get rid of your snacks. and Intermittent fasting is super important yeah. uh, for the ketogenic diet in a therapeutic state. You know, I try to get all my food between 12 in the afternoon and, you know, a, a good day four or five, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully. So it's almost like one long meal that I have. Like I kind of have like brunch and then a snack and then dinner and in a very small window because the goal is to have your insulin go up uh, as short a time as possible as opposed to like drawing it out to, you know, everything I was told, you know, eat six small meals a day and think about it, your insulin's like going like a yo-yo. So, you know, now my eating window is quite small. Um, I buy the best of the best. You know, you're eating very small amounts of protein. It's like less than the size of a deck of cards. Hmm. So like if I bought, when I was at my mom, she was like, isn't that grass-fed steak too expensive? Well, we bought one. It was eighteen ninety-nine a pound, but we got two meals for two of us right. out of that one steak. Whereas before, you know, the model of America is like you plunk this giant steak on your plate, you know. So it was only a couple bucks to have that grass-fed steak on our plate and then tons and tons of local vegetables, you know, the local greens especially. You're not paying a lot more for local organic greens than you are for conventional. Okay. That makes sense. So Yeah, we don't all have the benefit of growing it in our backyard. I wish well, we did. Well, like I do, do have my little <laughs> farmer's market trick, which is to get in touch with your local farmer's market person in the summer who runs it. Mm-hmm. Ask them uh, who grows greens in the winter. Because even though it gets to minus 10 where I live and it's snowy, I grow greens all winter long. Really? And so there's people like me that do this. Great. And so I ha- I pick a big basket of greens that are for stir fry or for cooking. And then I pick another big basket uh, for salads. And so you can ask your farmers that grow in the winter, you know, do you grow chemical free? Do you grow all winter long? Can you make me a seasonal mix of cooking and a seasonal mix of salad greens? Oh, that's a great trick. And so then you just have two big bags in your fridge. You don't have to think about like, what am I going to eat? You can be like, okay, I'm going to make soup. And you put your hand in the stir fry greens. You slice up those greens into noodles. You know, you make a soup. Or I'm going to just do scrambled eggs with sautéed greens. And and then, okay, I'm going to put my hand in this bag and I'm going to make a salad. Hmm. And so you're buying bulk from the farmer and you're buying direct. So you're benefiting these. Farmers don't make any money. You know, we lose money farming. Yeah. So you're supporting a local person and you're getting stuff that's so fresh. I think... You know, when you buy those big bags of organic greens at Costco, I mean, they're probably three or four weeks old. Right. And they're sprayed with some kind of chemical to keep them green, you know. Uh, And the transportation and the boxing and the... Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, there's a famous saying, it's like with your pharmacy, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, you know, pay now or pay later. Yeah. You know, and so I I don't even look at the price of like, fats now when I'm traveling and I have to buy like a bottle of avocado oil or, you know, some grass fed lard because, you know, this is life or death for me. Hmm. And I really don't, when I add it all up, because I'm not eating out 
I'm not at Starbucks. I'm not drinking alcohol. I'm definitely saving money on yeah, food. That's so. a great perspective. Um, I want to touch on the protein a little bit because I'm sure a lot of listeners are thinking 10% calories from protein. That's very low from what we're traditionally taught. And, you know, concerns about sarcopenia and muscle mass and maintaining your strength and energy and how you feel throughout this diet. Do you, do you have concerns with that low level of protein? Everybody's different in yeah. how they metabolize protein. So immediately I jump to the labs and look at total protein. And so when I set chronometer up for ketogenic and then I set them up for rigorous is the settings that you put and then you put your height and your weight and whether you want to gain weight, lose weight. Mm -hmm. It'll give you the protein goal. But then when the labs come back and let's say your protein says 6.5, then that's a little bit too low. We'd rather see you like 7.1 to 7.3. So then I'm going to customize the chronometer so that the protein level is a little bit higher and then we're going to retest and see if it works. I see a lot more people on the other end with protein being too high because mm -hmm. glutamate and glutamine can feed a cancering process. And so if you overeat meat, you can have too many cancer growth factors. And we also have the fact of gluconeogenesis of the protein being converted to sugar. About 30% of the protein can convert to sugar. So we don't want to overeat protein for two reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, makes sense. So it's, it's finding the balance to get enough yeah. to continue Yeah, and again, always and... using your labs, also using your DNA, because uh, DNA has a lot of information about protein, how you metabolize protein. Um, if you have elevated ferritin mm -hmm. uh, or genetic hemochromatosis, for example, then you're going to have no red meat, no cast iron pans, and you're going to have just chicken, fish, turkey, eggs, so ferritin being a marker of your iron stores and hemochromatosis being a, a disease, a metabolic disease where you hang on to too much too iron. Too much iron and then yeah. it becomes a heavy metal poisoning. And in right. cancer patients, we see cancer also creates its own microenvironment of an elevated ferritin level. We see that a lot. And so... Microenvironment of an elevated ferritin. Tell me more about that. Um, I don't know the whole actual process, but cancer like prefers... Um, Outside the cell, it will actually create what it wants. Hmm. Um, and it will create, it, it likes an acidic environment. That's why people talk about the alkaline diet. But that's not the tumor microenvironment, which is why a lot of people kind of misunderstand that okay. acid alkaline thing. Yeah. But tumor will also create high calcium. It will create uh, high ferritin. It will create high growth factors. It wants to create... Um, you know, think of it like if we're decorating this room and we're the, the cancer cells decorating its room so that it can be the happiest it can be. And it does that. And so a lot of times um, the ferritin, I need to determine whether it's genetic or whether it's being driven by the cancer cells or whether it's being driven by what the person's eating. Yeah. And so then again, this is that Sherlock Holmes, you're just right. putting all the puzzle together. So I want to transition for a second and talk about evidence, scientific yeah. evidence. And there's sort of a double-edged sword of scientific evidence, right? We say if something's evidence-based, then we know it works. No, depending on the quality of the evidence, right, how we interpret the evidence. And if there's no evidence to support it, we don't know that it works. And on the one hand, that makes sense because if you're, 
If you're treating people who are completely healthy and there's a potential risk of what you're doing, you want evidence to know that it is successful. If you're treating people at a desperate stage who have no other options, then evidence becomes a little less important. And so uh, I want people to understand there's sort of a difference in how we would approach somebody. And if all we did was practice what there's evidence for, it slows the growth of progression. So there's a little, a little balance there. So what you're talking about, there's clearly no long-term scientific evidence to support, but there's some clinical experience that is gaining momentum. So how would you characterize the strength of evidence that a program like this works? Well, it's different if you look at like peer-reviewed studies on PubMed. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the studies that I, you know, I use PubMed all the time to search for things. And when I get to the ketogenic studies, so often they're done with like canola oil, seed oils, right. like it's not what I call a therapeutic ketogenic diet that they're studying. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the evidence, it, you know, for example, they might say, oh, the ketogenic diet raised inflammation. And then I look at it and they use canola oil. Well, right. canola oil is going to raise inflammation for everybody, right? So you have to really dig to see what the studies are that you're actually looking at. And then Yes, a lot of the information that I get is anecdotally through myself and through my clients, you know, watching someone like myself given a terminal diagnosis. And, you know, if I if I had to go back and like redo my whole life and say I never had cancer and I actually wouldn't want that because cancer had me find keto and keto being therapeutic diet that I've been put on along with all the other things we talked about, you know, the hormones and the viruses and all that stuff, I have reversed my Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Um, I've reversed my breast fibroids, which they considered to be precancerous. Um, my polycystic ovarian disease has gone away. My, uh, I had really bad like yeast infections and urinary tract infections almost annually practically pneumonia from like lung infections mm. and i had really bad seasonal allergies that went away and all my arthritis even with my eight knee surgeries from jumping off of cliffs <laughs> eight knee surgeries eight knee surgeries those went away my epstein bar went away my cmv virus went away wow check 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 it's check, like check 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 check, check. Yeah. and 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 i see that with my clients, you know, the people that, you know, and again, there's no one size fits all. You really have to customize this for every single person, yeah. whether it's to prevent cancer or conquer cancer or conquer another disease. But I see the same thing. Check, 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 yeah. check, check. That's a great point. And that brings up the concept. We're not, you don't necessarily treat the tumor or the cancer. You treat the person, you treat the whole environment and you try and make them as healthy as possible. And there are natural cancer fighting systems we have and we need to be healthier to allow those to take place as well and all those things probably play some sort of a role well and if i'd found this 20 years ago of course i wouldn't have been open to it but you know yeah. i i would have prevented my situation for sure you know mm. i had every single risk factor you know that dr nisha outlined you know i had them all mm. and so it's just been such a great learning experience to um, use cancer as a teacher uh, and figure out what I'm missing. Right. You know, what do I need to learn more about? Right. And so like I had a little like thyroid bump in September. And so I was like, okay, what's this trying to 
teach me. Hmm. And I realized I was working too much um, and that there was too much stress in my life and that I had been ignoring that I had a DNA mutation uh, that said I couldn't process lactose. I thought, oh, well, I'll have a little bit of grass-fed um, cheese if it's local and really, really clean. Well, that wasn't the case. You mm. know, My DNA, once I finally did get rid of dairy, even though I had no symptoms of having a dairy inability to process, I then had a bite of goat cheese maybe two months after I'd gotten rid of it, and I literally got so, so sick. Interesting. So while you were continuously eating dairy, you didn't had, notice any reaction? Because you're continually inflamed. So once you got rid of it and then went back on it, and did you notice the clear changes in your CRP or inflammatory markers? Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Um, and, you know, I had, uh, I had one corn tortilla like five years ago, and I thought, oh, you know, one little tortilla. This was in the <laughs> beginning. I actually went into anaphylactic shock. What? Yes. I had eaten corn my whole life. Grew corn, rolled yeah. in corn, fed it to, you know, the chickens. Like like need to go to the hospital, get epinephrine. I was actually in Central America oh, on wow. my own, and I usually carry epi with me as, you know, in my first aid kit for other people. <laughs> and I didn't have it with me, and I would have used it if I had had it. I, I was that bad. Wow, that's an incredible reaction. What what gene um, were you referring to when you said you had a genetic mutation that says you can't tolerate dairy? Uh, there's several. LCT is mm -hmm. the primary gene that we look at, and then there's also APOA34 and APOA, uh, sorry, APOE34, APOE44, um, also uh, APOA2, which is a different gene. All, none of those can process dairy very well. So interesting. I think, I think sometimes we fall into a trap with genetics of focusing too much on one gene. So I'm glad you mentioned multiple because... There's a lot. If you just had one of those mutations, you could do perfectly well if all the others were okay. If you had multiple hits to the genes, then it sort of adds up and can affect you more. Yes, and you're also looking at the expression of the genes mm -hmm. in your labs because genes can be turned on and turned off. Right. Environmental exposures right. affects genes and epigenetics. And so, for example, my um, I had that dairy, several of the dairy genes, APOE34. Um, I have the ACSL1, and then I have um, LCT. So I knew I had three major ones. But then I want to look at my labs and see how it's expressing, expressing itself. And you would see elevated eosinophils if you're allergic to something. You can also see elevated monocytes if you're allergic to something. And you can see an immune system imbalance with your neutrophils and your lymphocytes mm -hmm. can be off as well. So for the listeners, those are those are measurements you can get just from a simple CBC or complete blood count exactly. because they're part of your, your white blood cells. And, and um, so they'll show up as percentages of eosinophils and, exactly. and monocytes. So yeah. if the percentage of the eosinophils is over two, then there's likely um, some kind of toxin to the body, which can be an environmental toxin or it could be a food toxin. Right. Okay. Well, s switching gears for a second, um, I guess, well, uh, well, we're still on the, the gene concept here. Genetic testing for cancer predisposition is very popular right now and has skyrocketed with 23andMe and with certain celebrities like Angelina Jolie being a big one. So 
what kind of guidance can you give to somebody who says either I want to know if I'm uh, BRCA positive or I am BRCA positive and um, what do I do about it? I mean, I know that's a very general question. With no, a but it's a good one. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people, well, there's a big difference between BRCA testing and genetic testing with like nutrition genome or 23andMe because what what we're looking at when we look at those broader tests is we're looking at the underlying metabolism and like do you process b12 well do you have the receptor for vitamin d3 um how do you process fats how do you process grains how do you process proteins um that's really different than whether you have like the BRCA gene or not mm -hmm. and a lot of people confuse the two because the BRCA gene is going to have some underlying genes like CYP1A1 or 1B1 inability to process estrogen um, BRCA genes also usually pe people usually have CYP2D6 or 2C9 uh, inability to process toxins um, BRCA people also generally have ESR gene. So you're talking about people who have the BRCA gene in general or those who go on to develop cancer are more likely to have these other genes that are well, the, mutations as well. So people who have an inability to process hormones and toxins, which are the genes that I was just talking about, have a tendency to also have BRCA. Okay. So there's like all these genes underneath that like kind of make up our whole body mm -hmm. and then there's like gene tests that are more like tumor tests i guess is what i would call them okay um i don't, i'm sure there's a better scientific word for it than that <laughs> <laughs> um but you know often uh the inability to process dioxins like um you know unbleached tampons things like that um unbleached paper or bleached sorry i should say bleached tampons bleached paper towels all those are dioxins, and mm -hmm. BRCA gene has an inability to process dioxins. Mm. And you can measure that from a sort of like a toxicity panel, whether the levels are high? You can, but you can also just look, if you look at um, nutrition genome for your overall gene panel, it will show you how you process dioxin. Mm -hmm. It will show you if you can process chemicals. It will show you if you can process, me process medications. And so if you know those things, and that's that's the next thing I wanted to bring up is a lot of people are afraid to get a genetic test like nutrition genome. And I use nutrition genome because I feel that it tests for more genes than 23andMe. 23andMe is missing a whole bunch of key genes that I really like to look at. Yeah. Um, so let's say, for example, they call the gene that I have, the ApoE4, they call it the Alzheimer's gene. And so then people are like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to find out if I have that predisposition for Alzheimer's. Well, what they don't know about that gene is, one, we every single gene that I test positive for, there's a workaround, mm -hmm. right? So I have ApoE4, the quote-unquote Alzheimer's gene. It actually means that I am much better at fasting than other people. Um, it was preferred in Paleolithic times, and it was probably bred for um, because we lived through periods of sustained uh, lack of food. And so adding fasting in helps clear my triglycerides that accumulate due to the fact that I have ApoE4. I've also switched the type of fats that I eat to help lower my triglycerides because of ApoE4. 
And then the biggest thing with Apoise Pour is that we are very, very sensitive to sugar. Hmm. So, you know, here we call Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes of the brain. Right. So ApoE4 people like myself are going to be really, really sensitive to sugar, which is why, like, you know, if I eat cabbage, I go out of ketosis. Hmm. You know, that's probably due in part to that gene. Right. And I think the argument of I don't want to know because there's nothing I can do about it, that seemed to be a much more common argument when the genetic testing sort of first came out. Um, now the notion is we can do something about it. Exactly. Right? And so... Every single gene has you know, a workaround. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting about the APO, the APOE3, the APOE4, um, part of the survival advantage could have been the higher LDL levels from Absolutely. the saturated fat intake. You, you get a sort of a stronger LDL reaction to saturated fat. And that was probably a survival benefit. Um, definitely. Times. And we don't know if it's dangerous or not in this low carbohydrate world that people are now living in. So I think that's a very interesting concept. Well, and there's also the studies, you know, that show high cholesterol, people living the longest. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's a lot. And the fact that high LD, LDL is an essential, you know, for the body. And I've right. seen whole talks on doctors talking about the benefits of LDL. Sure. And it's really about glycated LDL and oxidized LDL that are the problem. So I have very, very high LDL, but I also have very, very high HDL. Mm -hmm. And my NMR lipo profile is fantastic because of the way I eat. So all the things that said ApoE4 should be a problem for me, right. I have now... You have your workaround. Correct. Exactly. You know? And so the best thing about having cancer is I should, knock on wood, never have Alzheimer's disease because I caught it early enough. Right. Now, one of the issues about um, these genetic tests is for somebody who doesn't have cancer, someone who's just trying to be healthy and be as preventive as possible. I mean, it can be it can be so confusing and overwhelming with the just the exact number, the, the huge number of genes that they can test. And each one has a potential effect, but it's learning how they work together. I wonder if sometimes measuring the genes is not as important as just measuring the outcomes that you think they may lead to with certain blood tests and markers. So how do you sort of differentiate for people who, who want to be as proactive as possible, but just don't want to be overwhelmed and go down so many different rabbit holes? Yeah. I mean, I would say going to the health fair and getting, you know, your basic uh, lab tests are, is the first step for sure. Um, because that is going to show us like, what's happening in your body right now. And we might not know, like, let's say you have high ferritin. We might not know if it's genetic or we might not know if it's from some, from diet or mm -hmm. from some other reason, but at least we know it. Right. right. Um, and so I think of our health is like peeling layers of an onion and you just got to start with the outside layer. And you have to realize that when you get your lab test back and it says in range, that normal is a, in range is an average it, it doesn't mean that you have the correct amount of protein or that your blood glucose is in the right range. You know, right. if everybody in your area has diabetes, you're going to come back as in range, right. even if you have diabetes. Right. Just look around and see. Yeah, what the I know. Look at, I mean, like. how many people, what percentage of the US population has diabetes? Yeah. So that has we skewed. You don't want to be average um, anymore. And so that's the hard part right now for people is how do you get like a range like Dr. Nasha's range that says like this is optimal health mm -hmm. versus 
average. Right. And that's, that's the hard part. And that's why, you know, people hire someone like me. And that's why now I'm training other dietitians how to use labs and DNA and history to put this puzzle together for people because it is overwhelming. Yeah. It is a lot. Yeah. And, and also hard to study. I mean, you know, I, I keep going back to the evidence because I think when you talk about someone who wants prevention, that's when we sort of need a higher level of evidence to make sure we're not causing any problems. But something like this, it's going to be so hard to get that level of evidence because there are so many different permutations and so many different interventions you can try with them. And um, it makes it a challenge um, from that standpoint. Um, But if you're talking about reducing sugars, reducing carbohydrates, eating real foods. That's what I was going to say. This this isn't, you know, this is my premise is always do no harm. Yeah. And usually the biggest concern with doctors with the ketogenic diet is weight loss, too much weight loss. Right. And so if I can mitigate that concern with the doctor on too much weight loss, if, if the person is skinny, um, you can adjust chronometer so that you can gain weight, lose weight or maintain Mm -hmm. weight. Then it's about the quality of the foods. And so, you know, how can you, you know, really say that like eating really clean, really yummy food is like bad for you? Right. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, first do no harm. Like right. you can put anybody on a, a, a lower carb, higher fat diet. And unless they have some genetic marker that's like really bizarre, I think one of the hardest ones is APOE, APOA2. Um, because that can only consume less than 22 grams of saturated fat a day with the current science. Mm. What's the harm if you eat more? What, what does you'll that see you? fatty liver mm. a lot of the times. Um, you'll see an abnormal cholesterol profile. Uh, you'll see low HDL. So for those people, you'd recommend more olive oil, avocado Mo- oil? And, monosaturated fats. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of monosaturated fats out there now. You can get like Thrive algae oil, you can get perilla oil, you can mm-hmm. get Camila tea oil. So people who have genes that don't process saturated fat really well, like myself, you know, can just switch to right. a monosaturated fat. And and I think that's one of the biggest benefits of the gene analysis right now is before we were guessing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we're still kind of guessing because, yeah. you know, no one really knows anything for sure. We learn something new every day. Um, but all I can say is that in general, those gene tests have really helped myself and my clients pick better foods for our genetics. Yeah. So in the absence of the gene test, though, someone is following a a certainly reasonable low carb ketogenic diet and their BHB levels are in the, you know, 0.5 to 1.5 range. Would you be okay with that if it's from a prevention standpoint, not a treatment of cancer standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, every single people person, I mean, you'd want to look at insulin and determine how high their ketone level should be. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the higher their insulin, the more, you know, therapeutic they might need to be. To help lower that insulin. To help lower that insulin yeah. level down. Um, so they might need slightly higher ketones. Right. But some people can get away with like 0.5 ketones and they're just fine. And some people don't even need ketosis. They could just be low carb, high fat and right. eat really clean. And that's just fine too. Um, you know, the... American diet right now is just like, I mean, how much sugar do we eat a day? It's out of control. Insane. And yeah. and I considered myself as someone who didn't eat sugar because I grew and raised all my own food. I didn't think of like a grain as sugar. Right. 
you know, making bread. It's a healthy whole grain, (laughs) you know. Everything I studied in college, again, was wrong. You know, I was following those nutrition guidelines to a T and, you know, look at where it led me. Right. So I think any attempt at, like, going the other direction is going to be a good attempt. I don't see negative effects on people's health of eating less sugar. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, one more thing to discuss here. I know I'm jumping back and forth a little bit between cancer treatment and cancer prevention. So when we're talking about cancer treatment, what are your thoughts on exogenous ketones to help bring that ketone level up and just introduce more ketones into our system? Again, no research, no evidence. It comes down to sort of like a gut feeling and from your experience. Well, there is some research by Dr. Thomas Seafried um, talking about the glucose ketone index mm-hmm. ratio, and he did do some mouse testing on that. With exogenous or just with no, nutrition? No, with nutrition. Yeah. And so we're talking about nutrition. I think it's really, really important to have a low glucose because glucose feeds cancer, feeds right? Cancer. Yeah. Um, and high ketones. And the combination of the two is magical, which is why um, I don't know who invented the glucose ketone ratio, but I'd live by it. Yeah. And so I'm always trying to keep my glucose ketone ratio, you know, between z- 0.5 to 1.5 okay. or so, so. I've heard Dom Diagostino talk about that a lot. I don't know if he came up with it or not, but he certainly he d- it. It came up. I don't know who came up with it originally, yeah. the first, um, but I think it's really important to have both. Right. And I see a lot of people with cancer getting their ketones high, but their glucose is still very high. Mm-hmm. And is that a fasting test that you do? Uh, fasting, glucose, mm-hmm. and yes. Well, actually, the glucose ketone ratio, I can take any time of day. Okay. So all I am is is taking my, um, when I eat a meal, my glucose doesn't go up. Right. You know, not anymore, right? right? You know, I, I can be 69 before the meal. If it's a really good keto meal, I'll be like 75, you yeah. know. So it'll barely, but that's what our body should be. But, you know, the glucose can be affected by stress or by hormones or, you know, a lot of other things. So we have to figure out why is your glucose still high? Right. Why is your insulin still high? And and put that together. And then so ketones can be, exogenous ketones can be a problem, especially if people have high glucose and they're taking exogenous ketones. It's simulating ketoacidosis. Without... The necessary the danger of it. I mean, people don't necessarily get it. I I don't think it's. I think our body is meant to go into real ketosis, which is not just one chemical, beta hydroxybutyrate. And I think that's a great point. It's not just about pumping up the ketone level. It's about pumping up the ketone and lowering the glucose at the same time. And exogenous ketones aren't going to help. And it's not just lowering glucose. I mean, it's it's lowering inflammation. It's changing cellular signaling, mTOR, like ATP production, mitochondrial repair, like the list goes on and on and on. And it's just our culture just wants to take like one thing, like and this little exogenous (laughs) ketone is going to make us all better and get us away from all the hard work that goes into it. And I really think this is a case where you need to do the hard work. Yeah. I'm not opposed to exogenous ketones like, say, someone's going into surgery Mm -hmm. um, or they're doing radiation treatments and they need, like, a little bit of extra. Yeah. Um, You know, then I think it's, like, a good application. And the other really great application is traumatic brain injury. Right. And so if you have a TBI um, or let's say you get hit, your kid gets hit on the football field, popping some exogenous ketones has been shown to 
really diminish the uh, effects of a brain injury if they're administered within, I don't know how much time, but it's like, it's a short window. Yeah. I think that's one of the most exciting areas of exogenous I think it's going to be where there's really cool. actually happening. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it'll be interesting so. to see more of that research come out. Now, uh, you mentioned if they're going to surgery or if they're having radiation therapy. Now, what about um, prolonged fast during those periods? Because that's, that's a hot topic and a controversial topic because I guess you can say contemporary medicine focuses so much on uh, cachexia and mm -hmm. calories by any means um, that it's okay to just eat whatever you want to keep your weight up versus some evidence and clinical experience that says uh, prolonged fast is going to potentiate the effects of the radiation or the chemotherapy and help you get through it. How do you, what do you recommend for people in that standpoint? Well, definitely for chemo, the doctor, Dr. Walter Longo's mm -hmm. protocol um, of fasting before chemo. Yeah. Um, and if you can't pull off fasting, a fasting mimicking protocol, um, you can make up your own. You don't have to buy that fancy one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically fasting is putting, think of it, you know, just from a pure um, scientific perspective, if, if cancer cells can only ferment glucose and glucose is absent, those, when you go into chemo, for example, those cancer cells are going to be in a weakened position. Whereas regular cells like adore fasting, right? And so those cancer, those cells that aren't cancering are going to be stronger. And so you're creating this discrepancy of the weak and the strong going into chemo. Mm -hmm. And that's my dumbed down um, right, story. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, radiation, uh, Having ketones above three, um, Dr. Adrian Scheck has shown um, in some studies a, a 50% increase in effectiveness of a radiation if people are in therapeutic ketosis. Interesting. Uh, so there are studies um, that are backing that up. Yeah. And that is does not have to be fasting. I think the hardest thing that I see with radiation is people are given steroids and same with chemo raises and steroids raises blood sugar. So then it's creating a favorable. So we're putting someone in, into all this toxic treatment, but we're creating a favorable environment hmm. for those cancer cells. So there's alternatives um, to steroids that Dr. Nasha uses like Boswellia and turmeric. Mm -hmm. um, even simple things for um, a lot of people use like Benadryl. Um, instead of uh, steroids for chemo. Interesting. So, you know, you can get away with doing it, but with less toxic effects to your body, yeah. keeping your healthier cells healthier, your cancer cells weaker. You know, in my mind, everything I put in my mouth is either making my cancer cells happier and healthier or not. And this is something a lot of people don't talk about is the healthy human body makes somewhere between 500 and 2,000 cancer cells a day. So you made them today, I made them today, you made them today. <laughs> what we do is feed them or kill them. Right, create an environment where they're not going to proliferate and thrive. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to to leave it. And, and I, I mean, just incredible stories like yours of people who have these these just huge challenges and you could call it a tragedy in life, but turn it around to make it such an amazing benefit for you and for the clients that you work with who have are going through one of the most challenging times of their lives. And so I, I appreciate all that you're doing for that. And I think this was a great discussion and really to help differentiate the treatment versus the prevention, um, what people can be thinking about to, 
to maximize their chances to either cure the cancer or not get their cancer, but obviously still work with a provider. Don't try and do this for on sure. your own. And, that, and not, we didn't mention actually too that just so people know that there are um, alternative alternatives for treatment. Um, like in Germany, they're doing uh, hyperthermia with low-dose chemo. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, all these immune system boosters like IVC, you know, every single person's different. Yeah. But we've sent some people over to Germany or Turkey that have literally had to go in like a wheelchair or a stretcher and came back like playing with their children. And so a lot of the world, rest of the world is kind of light years ahead of where we are because right now in America, if, if a doctor recommends anything other than surgery, chemo, radiation, or a clinical trial, they can lose their AMA license. Yeah. And so we can't even talk about, you know, mistletoe or these things that are working really well um, right. in other cancer in other countries that are considered standard of care. And I think a lot of that comes with this polarity that people think just do this other alternative therapy and don't do anything else. And and that's not necessarily the message that needs to be promoted. You need to do like a million things. Right. In the same way, we shouldn't be saying just do chemotherapy and radiation and forget about everything else. That should be just as much malpractice as... Exactly. Yeah. You know, and it's it, you have to look at all the root causes. If you don't look at the root causes, it's going to come back. Yeah. You know, no matter how much treatment we throw at it, you know, if I don't change what gave me cancer... It might not come back at brain as brain cancer. It could come back as something else. Right. Interesting. You know, it's all about optimal health, and that's the exciting thing is think about it as, like, being the best version of yourself, <laughs> you know. Yeah, physically that, and emotionally. And that's why and we're all here and, you know, why diet doctor and stuff is everybody wants an optimal version of themselves. Right. Great. Great way to say it. So how can we find out more about you, follow you, learn more about you? Where can we um, it's you? just alisongannett.com, uh, A-L-I-S-O-N, G as in George, A-N-N as in Nancy, E-T-T as in Tom, dot com. Uh, that's my website. You can email me through there. And uh, I'm on Facebook as well, but I hate – I try to get rid of all that social media stuff. It's too stressful. (laughs) And um, I'm extremely, extremely booked right now, but um, I now have a team that I've trained. So Great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks a lot.